0: Good morning. The scripture for this morning's sermon is from Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. The word of God speaks to us like this And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion Which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, the girl got up and began walking. for She was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And told them to give her something to eat. This is the very word of God to us.
1: Yes, thank you, Leslie. Guys, good morning. How you doing? Hey, uh, I have to admit, I've never felt a greater generational gap in our church than hearing Dylan use LaCroix as a hook to get you guys to come to something. <laughs> like, I just don't understand, man. It's like sparkling water that's come into the general proximity of some sort of fruit. <laughs> not, not delicious. Not delicious. Uh, hey, so... <laughs> I've got just a couple of things that I want to tell you about to just sort of bring you up to speed on some things that are happening in the mission of our church as we get ready for the fall. Um, Really beautiful things. By God's grace, you guys have been so generous to give to our annual compassion funds, which we use to alleviate pain and suffering globally and locally. And uh, we had already done a large donation to purchase ventilators for people in India as they've been wrecked by the COVID virus. And uh, in the last month... You guys, through your generosity, made it possible for us to give another $30,000 to help alleviate suffering in hospitals in India through a beautiful Christian nonprofit that sends medical equipment globally. So praise be to God and thank you guys for your generosity. We, we love India. Amen. Um, we have, uh, we have some of our dearest friends and church planners from our church that are in the city of Mumbai working really hard to plant a gospel-centered church there. So thanks for caring about the globe. And let's just not talk about that outside of this. Um, we, we don't wanna go pat ourselves on the back on social media and we don't wanna talk about what we're doing in church planning on social media in India because it's such a hostile environment. Uh, the second two things I was gonna tell you about is that some of our newest church plants are just thriving and exploding with growth. We planted a church about two or three years ago in rural Iowa, and I'll be going there in September for either their second or their third anniversary. I don't know which, I'm not good at dates, um, but that little church plant in a rural community that's been wrecked by drugs and depression and young people fleeing the community, that church plant is exploding with growth. People are getting baptized, there's stories of redemption. It is amazing. So keep praying for Sacred Mission and that church plant. And then lastly, our newest church plant is Frontline Church North Carolina. We sent some of our elders and some of my best friends, Like those are some of the hardest goodbyes I've ever had as a leader in this church. And we've sent some of my precious friends and brothers and sisters to go to Fort Bragg, which is the home of, the United States Special Forces to reach military families. And they've planted the church. It's going amazing. And they just did their first membership class. And so I'll be going to check on them also in September. So thanks for praying for them. And then the last thing, um, this is really fun. We have one of my best buds here. Andrew, stand up. This is Andrew Burkhart. Andrew is the lead pastor of Frontline Church in South OKC. And Andrew is on sabbatical. We require that all of our pastors every seven years, whether they think they need it or not, get a break to reset their souls and just be with their families and go back to their first love, which is Jesus. And so, Andrew, we love you, man. We're so thankful for your leadership in this church. And we're so proud of you, man. You're such a good leader and such a good man. And it's really fun having you here today. Amen. Can you guys just honor my buddy? All right. Hey, so I'm going to pray for you and ask you to pray for me. And by the way, if we haven't met yet, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors. And uh, we're going to dive into this text. So if you got your Bible, open up to Mark chapter 5. We're going to look at those verses that Leslie read like a boss. All right. Father, thank you so much for this text. Um, This text just reveals the heart of Jesus so clearly and so powerfully And in revealing the heart of Jesus, we see your heart. So I pray today for every man and woman in this room. I pray for my friends that are not Christians. That this would be a moment where the gospel of Jesus would come alive in their hearts. And they would see the hope that they have. The victory of Jesus over sin and death on their behalf. And that they would trust him. And I pray for Christians like myself. Um, I don't know where all my friends are. But I know that this has been a season where my faith has felt kind of crusty and dry and It feels like a struggle to feel the passion I want to feel. I pray that this text would reignite in us belief. I pray that you would put a fire in our bones to have our friends know the good news of Jesus. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. And everybody said. Amen. hey, so like I don't have a clever introduction for this text because I don't think I need one. I don't have any jokes. I don't have any stories. I don't have any cultural references because this text is just such a beautiful and clear snapshot of who Jesus is. This text shows you who our Savior is and what he's like and what his posture is and what his heart is towards people. And if you see Jesus rightly, here's the thing that the Bible tells us from the beginning to the end. To see Jesus rightly is to see God. To see the heart of God. That Jesus perfectly manifests the fullness of God. That he came in the flesh to reveal who God is and to intervene in our lives. And so my prayer today is that whether you're a Christian or you used to be a Christian and you're not sure that you are today. Or if you know you're not a Christian, that this would just be a moment where the treasure of Mark chapter 5 would be a gift to you. Where it would lift you up and encourage you and invite you to an encounter with Jesus. So I want to show you three things in the text today. They're straightforward, but they're so important. Number one, I want you to see the external and the internal resistance to faith. This is a beautiful text about our resistance to faith, both for people who have crossed the line of faith and been baptized in the name of Jesus, the ongoing resistance we have to keep trusting Jesus, and for those of us in this room that maybe want to trust Jesus and you haven't said yes yet and you haven't been baptized. The internal and the external resistance to faith is all over this text. Let me read you this portion starting in verse 1. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him and he was beside the sea. And there came one of the rulers of the synagogue. That's really important to keep in mind. Jairus by name and seeing him, he fell at his feet and he implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him and down it says, following, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. And she was no better, but rather grew worse. And she had heard the reports about Jesus, and she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well, and immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And the disciples think he's crazy because he's surrounded by people, and they said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Okay, I want you to see in these two people, in Jairus, the synagogue ruler, this man of power, this man of influence, this man of privilege, this man that was highly regarded, and in this sick woman who was marginalized, who was impoverished, who was... On the outside of the religious life of Israel because of ceremonial uncleanliness, I want you to see a little bit of ourselves in them. Because even though these two people are different, they both have external and internal barriers to trusting in Jesus. For Jairus, some of the external barriers include pressure from the synagogue. Um, He's not a rabbi. He's not a teacher. But he's a ruler. He's an authority in the synagogue, which means He was an influencer and an overseer for the very group of people that are starting to get more and more hostile against Jesus. He is part of the group that's going to betray Jesus that already at this point in the story are seeing Jesus as a threat to their power and their influence in Israel. So I want you to think about what this guy is doing in this moment. He's risking everything by having an encounter with Jesus. He's risking being shamed by the very organization that he makes his livelihood in. He's risking everything. He's risking being shunned and rejected. He's risking losing his livelihood. He's risking his dignity. And I know that we don't live in an honor-shame culture as much in the West as our friends that do in the East. But in this honor-shame culture of Israel at this point in history... To lose your dignity in the eyes of your fellow community members was to lose everything. This guy has unbelievable external pressure that's almost demanding that he not come to Jesus in his desperation. And in the midst of all that, listen, there's the real possibility that he risks his entire standing with the synagogue. And Jesus also could reject him because Jesus knows that he's a part of the group that's already whispering about him. It could be guilt by association. He could fall down at the feet of Jesus and Jesus very well could look at him and say, hey man, I know what team you're playing for, go ask them for help. He could end up being a man without a country in between the synagogue and Jesus in a no-man's land where he doesn't belong and he's not accepted and he loses everything. In addition, he faces the external pressure of the mockery of his family and the professional mourners once his daughter passes. Like, Jesus says, the little girl's not dead, she's only asleep. And these professional mourners that wealthy people would hire to wail and cry and scream as a cultural expression of grief, they start mocking Jesus. And this guy's old family would have thought, who's this kook? Who's this weirdo that's saying that the little girl's asleep? She's verifiably dead. This guy's insane. And Jairus, this smart guy of influence, is going along with this nonsense? But listen, the external pressure, though real, pales in comparison to the internal pressure against faith. The internal pressure for this man would have been profound fear. Profound fear of the loss that he's about to endure with his daughter, but also the profound fear of loss stacking up on top of loss on top of loss. To be without a job and without a country and without a family. And in the midst of all that, there's the internal pressure that many of you in this room know of despair and hopelessness. Like, nobody can help. She's at the point of death. And then they come and relay the message that she's died. And he would have felt the angst and the mourning and the shattering pain of losing his daughter. And he would have felt the temptation towards hopelessness. There's internal and there's external resistance to faith. And the same thing could be said for the woman. This woman with a discharge of blood, under Old Testament purity law, would have been considered unclean. And I need you to understand how big a deal that would have been to be counted unclean for 12 years. She would have lost the ability to go to the synagogue. She would have lost her community. If people touched her or even a garment she wore or a chair that she sat on because of their purity system, they would have been considered unclean it's very likely that her husband would have left her. That she would not have a safety net. Like this woman could not be more marginalized. She couldn't be more shamed. She couldn't be more alone. She couldn't be more broke. And she couldn't be more desperate. And for her to walk into this crowd is breaking so many rules. A crowd where you're bumping into each other. If somebody found out that she was suffering from this disease, a discharge of blood, and they knew that they came into contact with her, she would have been unbelievably shamed and shunned. And she runs the risk in touching Jesus, a rabbi, one that she saw as clean of him turning around and saying, how dare you break purity laws? How dare you break the rules? You touched me in your uncleanliness. She stands the external pressure of having more shame stacked on top of a life of shame. And there's the internal pressure. Like, this doesn't tell us that she's wrestling with cynicism because it actually shows a beautiful picture of faith. But don't you think that before she heard the message of Jesus that cynicism would have had to have set into her heart? Like, how do you spend all your money on doctors... And they all promise to be able to help you. And not one of them can do anything for you. But they still take your money to the point of being broke and destitute. And you're left worse off than what you were before they treated you. She's done everything she could. She spent every dime that she's had. And not only did she not get better, she just got worse. She would have felt unbelievably, unbelievably embarrassed and shamed in her culture, and helpless, and alone, and without support, and not seen. And I want to just say, before we move forward to both Christians and non-Christians, it's so important that we wrestle with and do the work to explore the resistance to faith. Where do you have external resistance to really following Jesus? If you're not a Christian, maybe the external resistance is, your view of what you perceive to be failures in evangelical christianity which are huge by the way maybe your fears that if you cross the line of faith and follow jesus that you're going to be one of those people maybe your family will reject you maybe your spouse will reject you maybe you've actually sort of worn your doubt your agnosticism your unbelief or your exit from the church is a badge of honor maybe that's your identity now and you stand to lose so much that you've built if you cross the line of faith and maybe you're a christian and jesus is asking for more of you maybe you are a cultural christian which just sort of means you go through the motions but you're not really living your faith on mission you're not really living as salt and light in the world and for you to really follow jesus as a fully committed christian means that your coworkers are going to think you're weird And by the way, even in this part of the world, like we're not Seattle yet, but even in this part of the world, especially in OKC, in Midtown, in neighborhoods like my neighborhood, in places that you work and play, increasingly to be known as a Christian is to be seen as being on the wrong side of history, to be seen because of Christian teachings about sexuality as a bigot, or to be seen as one who is puffed up and thinks that they're morally superior to really follow Jesus, to say, yeah, I'm in, and to share your faith, and to not be ashamed of Jesus, you stand in our cultural moment, the risk of losing a lot, and wrestling with the internal and the external resistance to faith, the fear, and the shame, and the doubt, and the cost of following Jesus, is really important if you're going to hear the invitation of Jesus. This leads to the second thing, number two. I want you to see that desperation can give way to faith. That as this external and internal resistance to faith is raging in their hearts, um, the desperation that they're both enduring actually turns into this catalyst where the Spirit of God uses desperation to lead them to an encounter with Jesus. And what I love about this story and what I love about Mark who wrote this story is that he doesn't just randomly pull together these two stories, these accounts of what Jesus did. He's really intentional because even though on the surface these two people have nothing in common, a wealthy synagogue leader who is respected and a poor marginalized woman who was rejected and on the edges, even though they seem so vastly different, what they have in common is far more than what separates them. And that's something we need to hear in our cultural moment. We think that there's so much more that separates us than what brings us together. But here's the thing that brings them together. It's human desperation. Neither one of them can help their problems. Neither one of them can solve their crisis. Neither one of them can find an answer in the world. Neither one of them sees hope in any direction apart from a miraculous encounter with Jesus. And their desperation brings them together in profound unity. They both have no hope apart from Jesus. And what I want to say is like desperation can be a a real gift. Because the reality is the Bible teaches that we're all more desperate than what we think we are. We're desperate for a savior. We're desperate to be brought back into right standing with God. We're desperate to escape the scourge of death. We're desperate to escape the just judgment of God against sinners. We just don't feel that we're desperate most of the time. And Jesus tells this parable, which I want to read to you briefly, in Luke chapter 14 to drive home the point of desperation. Verse 16 says, he said to them, a man once gave a great banquet and he invited many. And at that time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready. And they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have bought a field, I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and he reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and he said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you've commanded has been done. There's still more room. And his master said to the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Jesus, in a similar vein, says that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. What's he saying? He's saying, listen. There's a way in which we can have a life that's so comfortable, that's so inoculated against the reality of our impending death. That's so full of everything that we think we need to be happy that we stop actually taking an account of the fact that when we die, we all stand before a perfect God and we have to give an account for our lives. And we can, in the midst of all of our comforts and all of our diversions and all of our entertainments, we can lose a sense of human desperation that tells us again and again and again that even on our best day, there's enemies that we can't overcome. That we can't answer the problem of sin and we can't fix death. And there's no way that we can overcome the just judgment of God by just trying to be good people because the standard's perfection and we all fall short of perfection. What happens with these two people in their desperation is that they actually are led to know that they need Jesus. And I just want to say, like, hey, man, this is my biggest concern for our church. My biggest concern for our church is that we live in a moment where we can, in Oklahoma City, in some real ways, especially for middle class folks and upper middle class folks, you can live in such a way That your life can be so comfortable and so busy being entertained and so full of the good life, quote unquote, and banking on the next vacation. And by the way, I'm not condemning you or saying that it's bad to eat at a good restaurant. I'm just saying the profound danger is that you can sort of medicate yourself to such a degree that you don't know that you're actually desperate. One of the things I love about Friends in Recovery One of the things I love about people that hit rock bottom is that they actually have a more sober reality check about what it means to be a human than people that think that they're doing great. Sometimes it's a gift to have everything blow up because in that moment, where does your help come from and where do you turn and what do you do? And that can lead us to an encounter with Jesus. Now I want you to see what happens. In their desperation, faith is born by the Spirit of God. Look at verse 34. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And look at verse 36 to Jairus. Jesus said to him, do not fear, only believe. In the storm of desperation, in the darkness and the pain, what happens is faith is born. Now, I want you to hear me say this. It's not faith in faith. We do so many weird sentimental things with both faith and prayer that are just goofy. It's not faith and faith. Faith is not a mood. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is not a vibe. Faith is trusting in Jesus. It's looking outside of yourself to Jesus and saying, hey, my hope is in you. I'm banking everything on your claims. I'm banking everything on your cross and resurrection. I am not my Savior. If you don't come through, I am sunk. Faith is looking to Jesus. And here's what's crazy. Faith in Jesus overcomes hopelessness. Faith in Jesus overcomes the fear of man. That fear that keeps you from wanting to step out and really trust him and really walk his way in the midst of a hostile world. Faith in Jesus overcomes man-centered religion and superstition. Faith in Jesus overcomes the roadblock of dignity. Like, hey, did you know that your own sense of dignity can be the greatest barrier to you encountering Jesus? Like, admitting, it's a profoundly difficult deal to admit that you can't save yourself. To be a synagogue official, a powerful man, and to fall on your face crying before this rabbi that most of your friends think is a charlatan and a kook and a threat. Like, he had to overcome his dignity. And the only way to overcome your dignity is to realize that Jesus is your only hope. and To throw yourself at his feet. So listen. Hey, th- these two people have internal and external roadblocks to faith, but in their desperation, the spirit of God works to get their faith focused on Jesus, to move to Jesus. And this leads to the last thing, finally. I want you to see the frightening power and the shocking tenderness of Jesus. The frightening power and the shocking tenderness. Because both of those things are true and both of those things are important. And to abandon one is to have a less than full picture of Jesus. In this text, we have a series of four profound miracles in this section of the Gospel of Mark. We've already looked at a couple of them. In this section of Mark, Jesus calms the storm, showing his power over nature itself. He speaks and the wind shuts up. He speaks and the waves go away. In this preceding passage, Jesus frees a man oppressed by demons. Jesus speaks and the demons run, showing his power over the demonic. In this text, Jesus heals this woman, showing his power over sickness and disease. And then the culmination of those three miracles is the fourth miracle where Jesus speaks to the little girl. He calls her back to life, showing his power even over death. And what happens in all of these passages is we get a sense, sometimes explicitly, of fear and trembling when people see the power of Jesus. The disciples in the boat are freaked out. The people in the village where the man was freed from demons are terrified. The woman, when she experiences this healing, it says that fear gripped her. And when Jesus raises the little girl back to life, it says that the crowd that was there was amazed. They're in awe. They're shocked. The power of Jesus is overwhelming. And what Mark is doing by giving us these eyewitness accounts, and make no mistake, they're eyewitness accounts. They're not fables or stories. These eyewitnesses accounts of the power of Jesus are designed to show you, That Jesus Christ is not just another teacher. He's not just another rabbi. He is the son of God in the flesh. He has all authority over nature, over the demonic, over sickness and disease, and over death itself. And to be in the presence of that kind of power should make you feel afraid. I don't like being in the back country or in the ocean with people that don't have a sober sense of fear. I don't like being offshore if I get to go spearfish with friends, with guys that don't take seriously just how dangerous that is. Or you get into the backcountry and people are flippant about safety precautions and knowing the risk that you're taking by being above tree line with things like thunderstorms. Like, I, I don't like to do stuff like that with people that don't have a healthy sense of fear about how small they are and how dangerous their circumstances are. And what Mark is doing in this text is he's saying, hey, man, like, when Jesus showed up, the very power and presence of God showed up. And that should make you in a healthy way afraid. But listen, Jesus shows up, and it's not just power. It's mercy. It's tenderness. It's gentleness. He shows mercy to Jairus. It says that he goes with him. Jairus falls at his feet and Jesus goes with him. He doesn't shame him. He doesn't say, hey man, you're running with guys that are talking trash about me. You're on your own. He goes with him. And he tells him to not be afraid. He goes to the very sense of fear that he had. And then I want you to hear me say this. This is really important. And some of you in particular, this is the main thing you need to hear today. Jesus goes with Jairus to the place of mourning and devastation. there's no more terrifying place to go into the room of a bereaved parent. And I want you to hear this because like in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. And we can make that an abstraction. We can think, oh, that's a principle. That's sort of a, a formula. Blessed are those who mourn because they'll be comforted is not an abstraction. It's the message about a person. It's the message about one who's near to the brokenhearted, who's not put off by devastating grief, who doesn't walk away from the house of grief, who walks into the house of grief, and who shows up knowing what it's like to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. If you're mourning, if you're suffering, if you've encountered profound loss, what we see in the mercy of Jesus is that Jesus wants to go with you into that place, He wants to meet you there. He wants to speak with you there. He wants to hold you there. He wants you to encounter his love and his mercy and his comfort there. In the woman, we see his mercy. Jesus doesn't condemn her. He doesn't shame her. He doesn't embarrass her. He doesn't rebuke her for touching him. He doesn't blame her for being sick. He doesn't do the whole word of faith garbage where he, would sort of make it about her faith and say, well, you were afflicted for 12 years and it's your fault. Jesus just loves her. In fact, what Jesus does is he reflects the mercy of his father perfectly. He calls her daughter. He calls her daughter. He sees her. He loves her. He embraces her and welcomes her. And then to the little girl, it's so tender. Jesus tells her, talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. He raises her from the dead and then he says, Give her something to eat. <laughs> They're overwhelmed. Everybody's freaking out. They've gone from devastation to pure joy and amazement. And Jesus is like, Hey, pay attention to the fact that this little girl's hungry. What we see in this text is the power of Jesus, but the mercy of Jesus. The power and mercy of Jesus reveal to us the kind of God that created you and wants to redeem you. His power and his mercy go together. And and lastly, listen, we also see something that's really important. I don't want you to miss it in this text. In the old covenant purity system, if something unclean or someone uncleaned touched someone or something that was clean, the unclean would defile the clean. If you touched a dead body and you were clean, you were then unclean. If you touched a person with leprosy and you were clean, you were now unclean. The clean trumps or the, the unclean trumps the clean under the Old covenant. But here's what's crazy: Jesus shows up, and he is so clean that he touches this woman and this woman touches him, and instead of him becoming unclean ceremonially, she becomes clean. And then Jesus touches a dead body. And instead of him becoming unclean, the dead body comes back from the dead and is clean. And what we're seeing in this text is that Jesus reverses the Old Testament picture of the defiling and corrupting nature of sin. Jesus comes to bring cleanliness. This is foreshadowing of what he's going to do on the cross where he will shed his blood to pay for our sins. To encounter Jesus with the most broken parts of our life is not to be exposed or rejected. To bring your sin and your shame to Christ is to be given a new identity and a new hope and a new future and to be made clean. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus is revealing you. Thank you for your heart for that little girl. Thank you for your heart for Jairus. Thank you for your heart for the woman. Thank you for your heart for us. Um, Lord, I want to ask that today as we receive the Lord's Supper, that you would do a really deep work, that you would help us to bring you our external and internal resistance to faith. Places where we're selling out our faith to fit in. Places where we're letting fear drive us places where we're conforming to the world, I pray that today would be a moment where you help us to name, interrogate, and hand to you our resistance. Pray that you would help us to trust you with grief, with mourning, if that's what's in the room. I pray that you would help us to trust you with our needs. And I pray for any man, any woman in this room that today is being drawn by your spirit to trust you and to become a Christian, that you would help them today. That at the end of our service, when we have pastors and deacons up at the front, that sick and hurting people would come and put their faith in Jesus. Thank you that faith is not a mood, that we don't have to work up feeling a certain way. We simply have to look at Jesus. Help us today.